Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. That was a preview of scenes from Avatar The Way of Water, a sequel to the original Avatar and opening in December. And Avatar star Stephen Lang is our guest on the show this week to talk about what will be coming up in the latest Avatar, as well as sequels being produced in the years to come. But Lang is currently starring in a highly unusual psychological thriller, Old Man, in which he portrays a mysterious, disturbing kind of hermit wilderness survivalist with, let's just say, a scary aversion to strangers showing up. Remarks Lang about all of this, when I read it, I remember sitting on my porch reading it and kind of scratching my head because I wasn't quite sure what I had read. First, some scenes from Old Man, then Stephen Lang, no stranger to an unusual diversity of roles, having portrayed as well real-life characters, the poet Shelley, George Washington, Babe Ruth, and John Brown. Show yourself! I got lost in the woods. I saw smoke coming from the chimney. How do I know you're not some goddamn psycho killer? Do I look like a psycho killer to you? Yes, you do. When a must mean in God hate you. Cup of coffee? My grandfather told me you can never be too careful in these woods. He told me it's beautiful, but it can also be dangerous. He was right about that. I'm a death and beauty out here. Who the hell are you? I said, who the hell are you? This is where the story gets real good. Hi, hello, Stephen Lang, and welcome to our show. Thank you. What was it about Old Man that got you inspired to be part of this movie and your enigmatic character? Well, I, when I read the script, uh, I remember sitting on my porch reading it and kind of uh, scratching my head because I, I wasn't quite sure what I had read. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, as you read a script, you kind of wait for it to reveal itself to you. And hopefully by the end, you, uh, you kind of have an understanding of, of, of what you just read. And I can't say that that was 100% the case with Old Man, but I found that fact intriguing. But what I did read was, was fascinating stuff, I thought. And I was trying to um, uh, kind of put a name on it. What is it, what is it that, that this is reminiscent of? What does this remind me of? And in many ways, it came to me that it was very much like it, it felt very much like a piece of sort of Allen Ginsbergian beat poetry in a way, <laughs> yeah. and which 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 I was was very positive to me, to me, and um, and I just felt that the the kind of aggression of the language the, uh, it, the the language was very fruitful. There was so much of it. It was like a cornucopia of of, of words uh, coming out of this guy. I thought that's very challenging. And even though I don't understand it right now, I think it would be interesting to become part of it and see if I 
if it does make sense, you know, yeah. uh, uh, either literally or, or emotionally mm. uh, for me. And so that was one of the big allures of coming into the project. Mm. Now, from what we know of Old Man beyond his mysterious past is that he's kind of a backwards survivalist, a loner and hunter with an aversion to strangers. What can you say about the notion of survivalists in the film, which has become lately an increasingly disturbing phenomenon in this country? Mm -hmm. Well, that's, I think it's an interesting point that there are, uh, there are many people who are, uh, more, more and more people are living off the grid. I think the, 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 um, the link between people and, and the grid and government and services, social services, is becoming uh, has becoming uh, more and more stretched thinner and thinner uh, over the years um, to to an extent uh, I think it's people are becoming many many people are becoming disaffected and kind of jaded and uh, just and, and very very distrustful of uh, you know of of the culture of society, of the services that are, of the way we are traditionally expected to live. Mm. And, um, but I don't know, I think that there's probably more of it, but I don't think it's a new phenomena. I do think that old man, some version of the character that I play probably was present a hundred years ago, 300 years ago, a thousand years ago. Mm. There's, there have always been uh, people who have felt um, abandoned and isolated and, and only comfort that they can find is within, you know, the, the, the walls of their own fantasy. And any word you could share about the new Avatar releases coming up this year and those in the years to come? Well, we're very uh, gratified by the, uh, the fact that the re-release of Avatar has generated so much uh, positive response and so much interest uh, because it, it, it is an indicate that the appetite is still there. And I can tell you that the, the Way of Water, Avatar 2, The Way of Water, is an, it's, a, it's a stunning achievement from, uh, from Jim Cameron. And it's, a, it's both a, a continuation of the world that was introduced uh, in Avatar, and uh, it a, a expands on that world quite uh, significantly as well in terms of learning about new places, uh, new and different environments of Pandora, and, and many different creatures uh, in Pandora as well. So, and and uh, having read and and worked on the sequels, that that kind of expansion and uh, in-depth kind of um, advancement goes on throughout the, the, the sequels. Mm -hmm. They never are repetitive. And what can you say about the challenges for you of playing quite a diverse number of real people, Babe Ruth, the poet Shelley, George Washington, and John Brown? Well, I love playing all the characters you mentioned are historical characters, and I and I have a particular affinity or love for playing historical characters because there really are benchmarks that one has to hit. You know, I mean, when you play Babe Ruth, you better make sure you got his swing down. If you don't have his swing down, then you ain't playing Babe Ruth. You know, it seems to me. <laughs> so um, that's uh, you just try and. Uh, if you get chosen for a particular historical role, I just try to come up to the mark as close as I can. When you're playing something like Old Man or, or The Blind Man or Colonel Quaritch and Avatar, these are more or less uh, creations of, uh, of, of a fevered mind, you know, whether it be Jim Cameron's mind or, or, or my own mind or Rodo uh, uh, Fede Alvarez and Rodo Sagaez's mind, you know. Um, yeah. Now, your character, simply designated as Old Man, has been described as, quote, eccentric, terrifying, and even funny. How did you go about balancing all these disparate emotions, and with so much of it, as you're kind of a suspiciously unreliable narrator as well? <laughs> 
Well, I mean, I, I go at it, the old man, and just you go at it with the same way you, it's kind of a version of how you live your life in a way. I mean, I just try to live my life in a, you know, get through the day in a, in a way that is um, uh, entertaining to myself and not completely annoying to the people uh, around me. Um, so, you know, you, I kind of try to go at things with, um, with a certain amount of humor, uh, with a certain amount of uh, kind of being aware of uh, the entertainment quality that I might bring to any situation. Uh, you know, serious focus to deal with the issues, whatever issues, uh, you know, are at hand. I guess it's just a question of judging the moments, judging the moments correctly or accurately, judging the moments and letting the behavior and the, the emotion, the attitude really uh, fit and fill uh, that moment. And if you're able to string enough of those moments together in, a, in an authentic way, in a way that feels honest, uh, then you have a performance. Mm. And you've said of acting, I was afraid of it. You kind of heave a sigh and go, oh, God, I'm going to have to go in there. Please elaborate. Well, I, I do think that a lot of times uh, a project that scares you uh, or a role that intimidates you is probably a good reason to do it because so much of life really is about overcoming our inhibitions and our timidity and our fears. And, um, and, and that's how we, as an actor, that's certainly how you stretch yourself and expand your horizons. I have no, I have no interest in playing the same thing over and over and over again. Um, there are probably themes that, that, that are consistently interesting to me in my work, but I try and explore them in, in different ways. But when I read a character uh, uh, that is frightening to me, that I, my initial response is to put the script down, invariably 15 minutes or an hour later, I'll pick the script back up again and uh, take a deep breath and plunge on and see where it goes. Uh, I remember the first time I felt that way was when I was uh, sent uh, the script to uh, Last Exit to Brooklyn, and this mm. is going back 30 years, and the script and the role really frightened me, and I came to realize that's, that's the reason you have to do it, man. And that's become a bit of a, you know, that, that's become a beacon to me. And when Stephen Lang looks in the mirror, what does he see? Oh, gosh. <laughs> 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 he sees a man in need of a shave. <laughs> Usually, <laughs> he says he sees. This, I mean, I see. I I still. What I hope I see is I still. I hope I see the eleven-year-old uh. in there. You know, uh, occasionally, uh, occasionally I see him, and occasionally I see the the seventy-year-old. Uh. You know, but. Uh, okay. Thank you, Stephen Lang, for calling into our show. You're welcome. Nice talking to you. Bye. Old Man is being released on October 14th and Avatar The Way of Water on December 16th. And wait, we've got some breaking news. Darn it. My approval rating's plummeting faster than my energy levels after breakfast. We gotta reframe the Joe Biden narrative. Hey kids, remember that time I wandered off stage looking for a hand to shake? Well, you got that one wrong. I was actually debuting my new dance for the talk tick. I call it the invisible hand. Cardi B's gonna love it. You wanna see me do the worm? Okay, you guys on the comms team are doing a great job. Putin price hikes got a real ring to it. Now let's do some more. I got a couple ideas like uh, COVID, it's been demoted. That's a, that's a very strong. Or how about your job's bad because of Vlad? Or let's launch our own NFT. It's called No For Trump. Yes. Wow. Some of you out there call me Sleepy Joe. But what you don't know is that really, I'm practicing meditation. It's called self-care, you idiots. I think you millennials know a thing or two about self-care. Heck, you sure ain't working that hard. What? I should ditch that last part?
And now in the Arts Express screening room, this is a world shut down and as a voyeuristic touch, the characters trap like specimens in a jar. Edward Hopper's Café Noir painting, Nighthawks. Curator James Payne burrows into the art and mind of Edward Hopper and, quote, on a mission to demystify the art world and discover the stories behind the world's greatest creations and what it has to do with subconscious storytelling, architecture, cinema, and a cash register in an otherwise deserted store. Edward Hopper's world was New York, and he understood that city more than most people. He understood that even though you may live in one of the most crowded and busy cities on earth, it is still possible to feel entirely alone. This painting was completed on January the 21st, 1942, just weeks after the bombing of Pearl Harbor and America's entry into World War II. That's not to say the war was a direct influence, but the feeling of dread many Americans had surely infused the painting. Afraid of air raid attacks, New York had blackout drills and lights were dimmed in public spaces. Streets emptied out and Hopper City was effectively dark and silent. past miles of tenements, giving the passengers a glimpse into every window. All the tenement dwellers got in return was a feeling of being close to the passing parade. And Edward Hopper took the elevated L train to work for decades. In his 40s, he was a failure who couldn't sell a painting. He hated his job as a magazine illustrator, but he needed the money. His paintings were pretty much ignored by critics, while his fellow artists enjoyed success and fame. But Hopper was convinced of his talent, and even when he was broke, he only accepted illustration work three days a week. Illustration really didn't interest me. I was forced into it by an effort to make some money, that's all. The rest of the week, he painted extraordinary images. He spent his entire adult life in New York City, most of it in a small walk-up apartment in Greenwich Village. Eventually, his wife Jo would move in. It was not a happy marriage. They argued a lot, and it was explosive, at times violent and extremely codependent. They would sometimes not talk to each other for days and spent much of their marriage in silence. We see this reflected in the disconnected and unhappy couples he portrays time and again in his paintings. Couples who may share the same space, but inhabit different worlds. Then in 1924, at the age of 42, he had his first sellout show, promptly gave up his illustration and devoted his life exclusively to art. He married Joe in 1924, the same year he got his solo show. They were both in their 40s when they married, and they would stay together for 43 years. Before they married, Joe was a moderately successful artist, and it was her who introduced him to curators at the Brooklyn Museum, who bought one of his paintings and launched his career. It was down to Joe that Edward became a success, well, a fact he never thanked her for. It seems to me that women are the ones that show the gratitude. In fact, Edward, a gloomy and silent figure, would spend their marriage constantly belittling and denigrating his wife and her artistic talents. Joe would respond with verbal assaults of her own. She was possessive and jealous and refused to allow other women to pose for him. She was the model for every single one of his paintings, including Girlie Show when she was 60 years old. Their unhappy marriage almost certainly contributed to the artists depicting figures who seem emotionally unresolved. 
In Hopper's paintings, couples are not communicating, touching, or displaying any affection. Relationships are ambiguous. Characters do not interact with each other. They are disconnected both from themselves and from us. Joe and Edward Hopper love the theatre and movies, and Nighthawks suggest to us a scene on an illuminated stage, as if we are watching in a darkened theatre. His compositions were often influenced by set design, stage lighting, and the kind of aggressive cropping and angles we see in cinema. With Hopper's work, it is important to focus on the preparation. Finding the right subject matter crippled him with anxiety. Once he decided, there followed months of research, preparation, and mostly sketching. There are 19 surviving sketches for Nighthawks, but he would have done many more. Hopper would use life drawings to establish a visual understanding, and then relied on his subconscious to refine the final composition of his paintings. We know from Joe's notes on the painting that she posed for the woman and Edward posed for the three men. He dismissed his years spent illustrating magazines, but along with the preparation skills he picked up, it also helped to hone his storytelling abilities. He planned Nighthawk like a film director, storyboarding the painting ahead of its creation. He prepared props, the position of hands, the distance of the couple, the clothes, and everything was documented by Joe. Then he worked out the angle of the diner's window and its position in the street like an architect. Hopper uses strong diagonal lines for the diner that converge off-screen and suggest a space outside the painting, but also lead the eye to the right. No matter which side of the painting you look at first, the clever use of perspective pulls your eyes towards the four figures in the diner. He uses colour to achieve this too. Darker tones of red and green outside the diner stand out against the bright yellow interior, causing our gaze to shift from exterior to interior. There is no life outside the diner, and what details there are are minimal. We see a cash register across the way, in an otherwise deserted store. We see an ad above the diner, but the buildings around are devoid of life. This is a world shut down. The large window not only creates a barrier between the viewer and the characters, but also emphasises the silence inside the diner and adds a voyeuristic touch. The characters are trapped like specimens in a jar. Windows and looking through them feature in so many of Hopper's works, and we are often looking at an angle. Although he was often grouped with the American realist painters, he once said, I think I am still an impressionist. The ideas of one artist in particular, Gustav Kaibot, was a major influence and is rarely discussed. His works often feature the window motif, but we can also see his influence on Hopper's loose brushwork, his use of saturated colour, his urban settings and his perspectives. Like the Impressionists, Hopper was obsessed by light. The year before Hopper painted Nighthawks, Café Terrace at Night by Vincent van Gogh was exhibited in New York, which we know Hopper saw and admired. Both scenes are lit by artificial light. Gas lamps in van Gogh's case. In Hopper's diner, the light source is neon light, a relatively new thing in the 1940s, which gives it an eerie glow like a beacon on the dark street corner. The nighttime setting is melancholic and enhances the emotional content of the work, suggesting danger or uneasiness. Hopper often portrayed a specific time of day in his paintings, and nighttime seems a particular time of anxiety for him from early on in his career. If you are looking for a door to welcome us in, there just isn't one, to go in or out. The diner is hermetically sealed, effectively keeping the viewer at bay. We can only stare in from the outside. The door we see probably leads to the kitchen. What really interested Hopper was emotions and interpersonal relationships. He was drawn to the lives of people he'd seen through the windows on the L train. In offices and in restaurants and apartments. The characters are in their own worlds. 
As is usual with Hopper, there is no sign of conversation amongst them. Tension somehow radiates from them. He specialised in these open-ended narratives, which demand the active role of the viewer in completing the story. He plays with our expectations, with our unconscious mind. This unrelated image, painted two years before Nighthawks, is a radically different subject matter. But there is still a sense of foreboding, a feeling that the story will continue outside the frame. Couples and their lack of emotional interaction was a theme in Hopper's work, and this would increase as he got older, and his relationship with Joe more distant. The couple are physically close, yet psychologically miles apart. Are they even a couple? At first, we think their hands are touching, but they are not. Her coffee cup is steaming. His is stone cold, perhaps suggesting he has been waiting a while for her. The title of the painting came from Joe, who described this character as having a hawk-beaked nose. He is holding an unlit cigarette, which in Hopper's original sketch was in the woman's hand. The isolation of the solitary man with his back to us is accentuated by the couple. A closer look shows us that he is holding a glass with his right hand, and he has a newspaper folded flat underneath his left. The front page, no doubt, full of news of the war. It is unclear who this random glass is for. Maybe it's for us. Along with everyone else, the waiter is not conversing or even making eye contact with anyone else. He is just staring out of the window. Ever since he painted Nighthawks, people have tried to work out the exact location of the real diner. Following hints the artist gave in various interviews, people spent months trudging around New York without success. That's because the diner never was in New York. It was always in the same place, inside Edward Hopper's head. Hopper was a fan of Ernest Hemingway's short story, The Killers, from 1927, which is considered an inspiration for Nighthawks. It tells the story of two thugs who enter a diner in search of their next victim. The classic 1946 movie version was in turn inspired by Hopper's Nighthawks. The quintessentially American artist loved cinema, and cinema, that quintessentially American art form, loved Hopper. He often went to the cinema alone at night in search of inspiration. Film noir was a primary influence, and we can see this in what many consider to be the first film noir, released one year before he completed Nighthawks. It is said that while shooting Force of Evil, the director took the cinematographer to an exhibition of Edward Hopper's works and said that he wanted the picture to look like those paintings. Hopper said that even his early works may have been influenced by German Expressionist cinema he saw in Paris. When it comes to the filmmakers themselves, Hopper is arguably the most influential artist of all time. A new generation of filmmakers would pay homage to Hopper's use of high contrast lighting, his American settings of anonymous apartments, diners and bars, by his extreme cropping and decentralized framing. But in particular, they would be inspired by the characters he painted. Characters waiting for their stories to be told. Nighthawks itself was faithfully recreated for the movies, with the diner becoming a short cut to emotional dysfunction. Nighthawks, like the best movie, is not just about composition and style, it is a masterwork that in a single frame can suggest to us a narrative that stretches far beyond the picture plane. It's probably a reflection of my own, uh, if I may say, loneliness. I don't know. With Nighthawks, Edward Hopper captures a world of loneliness, isolation and quiet anguish. The painting, an immediate success, was bought by the Art Institute of Chicago, where it still is today. Hopper, the quiet man of American painting, projected an everyman image but he was a complicated and troubled man. He was an intellectual, 
who struggled to find inspiration and grappled with meaning. His works took months of preparation and hard work, and he only produced about five paintings a year, sometimes less. He often felt like an outsider himself. At six foot five, he was an exceptionally tall man, and by the age of 12, he was already six foot tall a fact that certainly contributed to his growing sense of isolation and loneliness. Painfully shy, he was a loner from an early age. This continued into adulthood and he was deeply introverted and uncomfortable in social situations. When he married Jo, it would seem that his years of loneliness were over. But as many people discover, you can be in a relationship and still be utterly alone. Hopper's paintings demonstrate to us that these feelings are normal, that loneliness or feelings of isolation are commonplace. Ironically, his paintings show us that actually we are not alone. And thank you, James Payne, and your great Art Explained series. And we'll go out now on Arts Express with the Book Corner and author Tim Schwartz on public service, whistleblowing disclosure, and anonymity, a how-to guide for would-be whistleblowers. <laughs> Hi, this is Jack Shalom. Less than 10 years ago, former NSA employee Edward Snowden blew the whistle on the U.S. government's illegal, unconstitutional, worldwide warrantless surveillance plan. Throughout history, brave whistleblowers have risked their lives and livelihoods for what they considered the greater good. But what is the cost these whistleblowers pay? And more importantly, how do the successful whistleblowers succeed? Our guest today has written a how-to guide for would-be whistleblowers, uncovering many of the traps and missteps one can fall into. I'm happy to be talking with the author of the book, A Public Service, Whistleblowing, Disclosure, and Anonymity, author Tim Schwartz. Tim, what prompted you to write the book? Uh, I'm an artist as well as an author and an activist. And when Trump was elected and I kind of saw how he was treating some people that were standing up to power, I got uh, frustrated. And I started working on a small guide for federal employees to blow the whistle, how they could release information. And as I started doing it and researching, I realized that just giving someone a simple guide for how to do it would actually probably be a detriment to them. You know, if you really just simply took information from your workplace and handed it to the press without any thought to your livelihood, how to do it, you'd probably end up in jail or, you know, losing a job or something like that. So I backed up. I did a lot of research. I did a lot of interviews. And I tried to construct a book and a way to think about this that could prepare people to blow the whistle um, in any context, really. Well, if we review the way that most whistleblowers are treated, would you say it's true that no good deed goes unpunished? I wouldn't say that exactly. Uh, I would say that there are a lot of hurdles to changing a system for good. And I think there's a lot of people that will try to take you out, try to ruin your life. Uh, but many people now are doing it and doing it right and building their own careers and livelihoods out of it and changing systems as they do it. So I'm glad. I think we're in maybe not the heyday, but we're in a good place where there's a lot of organizations out there to support whistleblowers. And there's a lot of information about how to do it in the most responsible and protective way for yourself. 
a whistleblower hopes there's some kind of responsive system or process to deal with abuses of power. Is that realistic? Let me put it this way. I think it's very difficult for a system internally to change itself. Oversight, I think, needs to come from the outside and regulation. And to change a system, I think it's much easier or maybe more productive to go to the outside. I was sort of astounded that sometimes the retaliation against the whistleblower has nothing to do with the whistleblower hurting the company in any way, but is a matter of control. You talk about one instance about Elon Musk retaliating against a leaker who was seeking to save the company $150 million. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah. So at the Giga plant in Nevada that produces batteries for Tesla, Martin Tripp, who was working there shortly after it opened, and this is a huge, huge plant, realized that it just wasn't set up effectively. It was too new. People didn't know what was going on. And there was a lot of kind of wrongs going on in the plant. But one in particular he saw was a huge waste of materials. Upwards of 40% of the materials in there were being wasted. And so Martin Tripp took this information to the press. It went out and very quickly, Elon Musk you know, rallied private investigators, rallied his internal team, and they went after Martin Tripp with a vengeance. Uh, so much so that uh, they put in a, a fake gun threat that supposedly came from Trip. They sent the sheriff after him. And this guy's livelihood was was ruined really quickly. And in fact, uh, I think he ended up moving to Hungary to kind of get away because his whole life had been turned upside down in this one instance of releasing information that, that should have saved the company millions and millions of dollars. It's, re it's remarkable. What has Obama and Trump's respective records been on responding to whistleblowers? I really thought when I started writing this book that from all of the rhetoric and speeches I had heard from Obama, that he was really protective and um, supportive of those that speak out. And he was you know, for a very transparent government. But what it turns out to be is Obama, probably more than anybody else before him, any of his predecessors, went after those that leak information and whistleblower uh, information from the government with a vengeance. There's the Espionage Act from 1917. And before Obama, only one person had been fully charged with the Espionage Act. During Obama's administration, eight others were charged and put in jail for releasing information under the Espionage Act. And it's basically been changed into an act that any information released can be seen as an act of treason. And there's basically no way for the person that releases that information to have a valid argument in court uh, because the government has deemed that treason. It's pretty ridiculous. And that's being used against Julian Assange right now. And and Snowden. And Snowden. Well, what, what do you say to critics of people like Ed Snowden or Chelsea Manning when they say, well, they should have followed the protocols and gone through the proper channels? I mean, should you go through the proper channels first to forestall criticism? Or is that giving up your anonymity and element of surprise? Um, we can talk about anonymity in a second, but the the right channels, I think, really depend on the circumstances. And I personally recommend anybody that comes and talks to me to likely talk to a lawyer first or a specific whistleblower organization that will know the different avenues and paths to approach this. I'm not saying that going internally to the inspector general uh, won't work, but you know, it really depends on the circumstances. Certainly, Edward Snowden, and if he had gone internally, nothing would have happened. Uh, Thomas Drake is another example who had seen, you know, others internally at the NSA try to go and have the IG make changes. And it was only by going externally to the press that really the public was informed and pressure could be put on the NSA or other government agencies to change. Well, okay, let's let's talk about that then. What's the first step to take when you feel like you may need to whistleblow? So in my book, I really argue for starting from a point of anonymity and doing anonymous research. Anonymous research could mean going to a library and searching on a, a web browser there that's disconnected from your identity. Could mean going and buying a different cell phone or tablet to do research that way. But the point is, is to start from a position of 
having a different identity, one that isn't connected to yourself to start gathering information. And why this is important just in general is I'm sure many of you are aware uh, that most everything is tracked now. So if you type into something to Google, it's tracked. If you start searching for things, there could be a way for someone else to infer who you are and what you are looking at. A, A simple example would be say, a mother in an abusive relationship that wants to find a way out of that. Mm -hmm. If she on her phone started searching for support organizations, her partner could find that and cause more abuse. So by doing it in a secure and anonymous way, there's a possibility to gain information without revealing yourself. From there, just looking up lawyers and particularly whistleblower organization, support organizations that could support you and getting in contact with them. There's a tendency we've seen recently for people to go directly to the press immediately. And I think I'm I'm a big fan of the press. I think it is an amazing way to shine the light on abuses of power. But, you know, first and foremost, the press's priority is the public and informing the public, not necessarily the whistleblower. So I think it's a, a dance and figuring out who's going to be the best partner to to share that information. Well, what what are some of the pitfalls in trying to stay anonymous? I think, first of all, is just using your cell phone. Everything is so wrapped up in your cell phone and this device you carry around all the time, whether it's your location that's being tracked, uh, who your contacts are, uh, what information you've sent and, and logged. That it, It's really, if you are trying to make an anonymous profile or do anything anonymously or privately on your phone, it, it's probably going to get messed up. So that's why I think just, you know, walking to Best Buy and buying a $50 cell phone in cash and taking it to Starbucks and using their Wi-Fi to then do research. You could potentially set up a new email account and email a contact, whether it's at the press or a lawyer, to set up a meeting. You've really separated yourself from your data. And I think that's probably the most important mindset that people need to uh, start to adhere to. And the other the other starting point that isn't exactly anonymous, but that many people forget about is within your organization, making sure the information that you think is correct is correct, whether it's slowly talking to others, your your colleagues, and trying to understand if they have the same perspective you do. And, and that way you can also build support for later on when you do reveal information that you have other people to back you up. In your book, you talk about ways that your anonymity could be broken, and it's it's kind of mind-boggling. You, you recommend that people use Tor or one of these anonymous kinds of computer browsers, but you also say that even those are not foolproof because there's so many ways that you can be traced back. Yeah, I, I do recommend Tor. Tor stands for the Onion Routing. It is a piece of software that's a browser like Chrome, but it routes its information through multiple computers around the world. And basically, no one can know who you are as long as you're just looking at information. Um, of course, once you log into something like Facebook, they, they know who you are. You know, if you're the only person in a company that has access to a particular document, well, then you, no matter what computer you use, you're vulnerable. In the old detective stories, we had uh, senders of anonymous letters unmasked by analyzing the typewriter print, you know, like the loop of the E was always clogged with ink or there was a stutter in the space key. So evidently, each typewriter had a unique set of quirks that could be discovered on inspection. And what about modern day printers? So before I get to modern day printers, I'll just talk about this concept of uniqueness, which is a little different than anonymity, because that's exactly what you're talking about. Reality Winner is a great example where they had access to the documents on the the government computer. And when they looked back, the researchers and analysts, they saw that only six people had access to that document. So really quickly, you know, the pool of suspects became six. And the point there is you can have anonymity software, you can have things that protect your identity, but if you are uh, doing it in a unique way that makes you the kind of red flag or the red dot, then using all the software in the world doesn't protect you. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Coming back to printers, it is astounding to know that there's something called micro dots that come out of all laser printers. And they basically, 
They're very, very pale yellow dots that can only be seen with a magnifying glass. They come out of every page of a laser printer and they identify the time, the network ID, you know, the user, basically everything about that piece of paper that's coming out. And so if you print off something at work and send it to a reporter and that reporter doesn't know about how to sanitize those documents well, and they publish it online, the investigators could really quickly look at that PDF and identify what printer printed it. Wow. And the documents themselves have information embedded in them, don't they? Yeah. So I have a chapter that's just uh, documentation, gathering, sanitization, and storage. Once you're connected to the internet, I mean, if you're connected to Wi-Fi, can can you be tracked? Sure. Um, But that's why I recommend... For example, uh, using a VPN, if you've got an anonymous device, using it at a hotspot or a Starbucks that isn't your typical Wi-Fi, and then using an anonymous email account. Like if you've got ProtonMail is a great example of an encrypted email service from Switzerland that people could create a free account on that is totally deassociated from their own identity and use that for passing information back and forth. Mm-hmm. Even if we're very sophisticated, it may be that the journalists we try and get in touch with or the lawyers that we try and get in touch with are not as sophisticated. How should lawyers and journalists be approached? One of the reasons I focus on anonymous research is that you can research anonymously who might be a good partner. You know, if you are blowing the whistle on agriculture issues, reading newspaper articles and looking at who's already covering the topic and seeing if they give signs that they're up on this technology. So they've got a tips page or they're listing uh-huh. a Proton Mail account or some some way to contact uh-huh. them that is safe. You know, a signal messenger is an encrypted instant messenger on phones. And if a journalist is listing that, we think, okay, they know what they're doing. They're in this sphere of the place I'm interested in whistleblowing on, and they're up to speed on technology. So I'm going to reach out and contact them. I just want to get back to one thing about being anonymous and protecting your information. What's the most important thing to know about creating a password? Uh, This is one of my favorites. So creating a password, let's let's just be clear, Jack, probably everybody's passwords are are horrible, or 95% (laughs) of people's Uh passwords are horrible. The most important thing when it comes to a password is the length. Every character or digit you add to a password makes it you know, that much harder to break. An easy way to do this is to flip open a book. I find I've, I've trained my parents to do this. Take a random book, flip it open, put your finger on a word, do that four times, uh, create a sentence out of those four words, and that's a new very random password that is easily memorizable. That seems to be the downfall for a lot of people, including myself. It's easy enough to create a random password, but how to remember and recall it? Sure, maybe I can remember and recall one, but you know, I've got 50 of them. What, what am I going to do? Yeah, that, that's why I recommend password managers. They're a program that runs on your computer that's encrypted. I say people need to remember three passwords, one to get into your computer, one to get into your password manager. And then I always recommend people memorize the password to their email. So if yeah. they lose everything yeah. and they need to get back in. And if you can remember the password to your password manager, then you can get into all your passwords. How do you think the prosecution of Julian Assange is affecting the landscape? That is a really tough, hard case. And I feel so bad for how he's been treated over the years. It's a shame. I think at this point, they're out to get Assange for whatever they can. And I, I hope he makes it out of this okay. Yeah. I can't They imagine. really want to make an example of him. Yeah. Well, Tim Schwartz, what's the most important thing that you know about whistleblowing? I know that whistleblowing can be such a great change for good and can really help organizations, systems, systemic issues be changed, abuses of power, even standing up to harassers and uh, sexual harassment. Mm -hmm. Those are all people that are whistleblowing. And I think the more people trust 
that they can find a safe pathway to release this information and make a change in the world, the more people will continue to do this. And I'm so thankful that there are many organizations out there and they're growing and growing by the day, you know, whether it's the Government Accountability Project or the Signals Network that do real support for whistleblowers. I'm just thankful for the whistleblowers out there that have decided to stand up. And I'm thankful that there are organizations out there and that the press continues to inform the public and support those sources that come through. Tim, as we wrap up, is there anything you'd like to add? I would encourage anybody out there to look up some of these privacy software Mm -hmm. out there, you know, whether it's Signal or Wire for instant messaging or download Tor and try it out just to get a little bit familiar with these tools so that if something does happen in the future, you know, a great example is you can easily see in the future with insurance companies that potentially they're going to be mining our data, seeing what diseases we could potentially have in the future and changing our rates based on that. So if you have maybe a health issue or a potential health issue or even a mental health issue, doing that research anonymously makes it less likely that someone Mm. could change your insurance premiums, could prejudge you, could potentially not give you a job because there's information out there online about who you are, what issues you might have. So just using Tor generally or going to a library to do research online, I think is is an important thing to think about. That's great advice. Thanks so much. I've been speaking with Tim Schwartz, author of A Public Service, published by OR Books. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.